This is Tom Waddle on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Waddle and Sylvie podcast sponsored by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Follow at TweetJHood on Twitter. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. What's up and welcome in. Hope that you had a great weekend. Hope that you have a great Monday night as I keep you company until 10 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000. It is a Last Dance Monday brought to you by Coors Light. Did you watch the documentary or did you DVR the documentary last night? Episodes 7 and 8 were so much fun. Yet another two great episodes of the Last Dance documentary on ESPN last night. And I really enjoyed the storytelling and the backstories that we have received on these shows. Michael Jordan, as you well know, is a supreme competitor and a one percenter in every sense of the term. One percenter meaning that he is one of the very few that you've seen in sports with that ruthless aggression, that ability to surpass others as far as wanting to win. We've seen a lot of champions. We've seen a lot of champions in this city. We've seen a lot of champions all across the country. Perennial champions. We've seen teams that have won championships. But you can always tell the difference between a good player, a great player, and then someone that's above the clouds. And Michael Jordan was that guy. For those that are millennials that are seeing a lot of this action for the first time, they've got to be wondering, wow, this is not just some flimsy non-HD film that we're seeing of someone from the 1940s or 50s or someone that wasn't really uh, on the landscape and really didn't capture the imagination of fans across the country and around the world. No, this is real. It's a real thing when you see Michael Jordan, a supreme competitor, a one percenter in every sense of the term. You know, you'd be hard pressed to find someone so driven to win that when he describes winning, he is brought to tears. Some can't relate to wanting to win so badly as an adult that you become emotional. But that is something who he was. And he, that just tells you how he was at a completely different level as a player. And watching the Last Dance documentary of the last few weeks, the documentary ricochets in so many different directions and angles. But the one takeaway is that Jordan found any edge he could to win. I wonder how the modern day ball player looks at this documentary. When I'm watching this every Sunday night now, and I'm sitting in the hood cave and I'm watching the big screen, this documentary, and really enjoying what I'm seeing here because there's some nostalgia there, but there's also a lot of connections to what we're seeing here in 2020. In that, I wonder what the modern athlete thinks of when they see this level of commitment, this level of wanting to win at all costs. Now, everyone isn't calling their teammates whole or constantly badgering their teammates to get the most out of them. But this was Michael Jordan's way. And there was success that came from that. Six titles in eight years. That's the success that came from that. And you just don't just lay around and complain and complain to the media and complain and, and feel like, oh, the world's against me and get on Instagram and put Maya Angelou quotes out there talking about your feelings. 
Now, it, it, the commitment comes from being in the gym. The commitment comes from wanting to get better at your craft. Knowing you're at the top, but yet you want to compete so badly against anyone who wants to take you on that you'll find the littlest things or the biggest things to be able to get better. As we talk about The Last Dance, brought to you by Coors Light with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. In an era, especially with today's sports talk, that measures rings and how many you won and how many you lost, Jordan wins that era of basketball and why many deem him as the very best, whether you like him or not. Many teams have their run. The Bulls' run was to dominate the 1990s, and Jordan was a big part of that. You've seen many gifs or you've seen many crying memes when it comes to Michael Jordan. But his thing I'm looking at is I'm not concerned about gifs. I'm not concerned about crying memes from Jordan. I see something that more than likely I'll never see again in this city with the Bulls. And that's championships and success at all costs. One step further, winning with drama around the team on a daily basis. Are you seeing this like I'm seeing this? I mean, every hour you are seeing drama around the team. Now, as someone that was watching the Bulls or being around the Bulls or covering them from time to time, remember, during this time, you know, I'm thinking toward the last repeat, I was probably around the Bulls a little bit more as someone that would get a credential, be around the locker room, but I wasn't a beat reporter. I was just a on-air producer, just kind of looking at book guests and also just trying to get a vibe of what's going on for shows I was doing in that era. And it, the, the amount of drama and question marks uh, about this team was just amazing. Question marks like, what's up with the Bulls after they win this sixth championship because it was almost a fait accompli that the Bulls were going to get in this position to win a championship. And if they did, what would really happen? Jerry Krause is saying all these things now, but is it really going to be a change? Can you see a team without Phil Jackson? See a team without Michael Jordan? And that thing became more and more real as the weeks went on. And this will tell the story in episodes 9 and 10 that the championships how there was a lack of value of championships for Jerry Krause toward the end because he felt that he can win a championship with anyone because he believed that championships are won by organizations more so than players. And every time that you hear a soundbite, every time you hear from players, every time you hear from writers and those that were around the team, that becomes a louder sentiment more so than anything else. So while the modern era of people on social media and younger fans look at Jordan when he was crying at his Hall of Fame speech and and trying to make gifts out of what he's doing now on this documentary. It doesn't matter. The, the bottom line is, is that throughout all that he went through, the death of his father, leaving the game to go play baseball, coming back to play basketball, the championships and the success is the number one thing. Now, you can go in the weeds if you like and try to find things that uh, are unsavory and things that you can latch onto to be able to throw stones at Michael, but I want you to be able to understand that there was a lot that Jordan had to go through and the Bulls had to go through to be able to sustain their success. Winning with the drama around the team on a daily basis, the Rodman antics, the Pippen antics, which we'll get to a little bit later on, the front office, Jerry Krause, Jerry Reinsdorf, all those issues, it was always something with this Bulls team. Let's go back in time and uh, hear from uh, a little bit of the documentary. Michael Jordan 
there's a number of people that were asking in episode seven, uh, is Michael Jordan a nice guy? Was he a nice guy? It couldn't have been nice. With that kind of mentality he had, you can't be a nice guy. He would be difficult to be around if you didn't truly love the game of basketball. He is difficult. Through the years, you think that intensity has come at the expense of being perceived as a nice guy? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, winning has a price. And leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenge people when they don't want to be challenged. And I earned that right because my teammates came after me. They didn't endure all the things that I endured. Michael Jordan is down in pain. Once you join the team, you live at a certain standard that I played the game. And I wasn't going to take any less. Now, that means I had to go in there and get in your ass a little bit, and I did that. You asked all my teammates, the one thing about Michael Jordan was he never asked me to do something that he didn't do. see this and they're gonna say well he wasn't really a nice guy he may have been a tyrant oh well that's you because you never wanted anything i wanted to win but i wanted them to win and be a part of that as well I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. Hmm. You ever want to win so badly that you got emotional? That was as gripping a scene as we were able to witness in this documentary. Hadn't seen Michael like that before. I don't think any of us have seen Michael like that before, just to, to try to explain it. It's one thing to watch it, but to be able to explain it the way he did there about him being a nice guy and whether and B.J. Armstrong obviously didn't believe that and Will Perdue and Judd Bushler is talking about how he was afraid of Michael, all that nonsense. But for Michael to explain it, it's a, it's a different level of commitment uh, for sure. Another story that uh, resonated with me in this documentary, amongst others, was um, the passing, uh, the murder of James Jordan. So as the story goes in the Sun-Times from February of 1996, a 21-year-old man was convicted today of murdering Michael Jordan's father, who was slain as he awoke from a nap in his luxury car. Daniel... 
Andre Green was convicted of the first-degree murder, first-degree robbery, and conspiracy in the July 1993 attack. Uh, Jurors, they deliberated for four and a half hours over two days before returning guilty verdicts on all charges uh, in that particular uh, setting. Green could get life in prison or the life or death sentence. Um, the, the six woman, six man panel deliberated for one and a half hours Wednesday after electing a gospel disc jockey as its four woman. Um, jurors requested photos of James Jordan dead and alive uh, in the aerial fo- footage of when he was shot. This was um, difficult to watch again because. The one thing about James Jordan is that you did see him around from time to time at games. You saw in the documentary at times that he was speaking on behalf of Michael and Michael's another. So, okay, I can speak for myself. And Jordan's dad was saying, Hey, you know, you are guys pretty much are exalting him to tear him down. Um, and so you love that there was a connection between the two, a real relationship where they were like friends, even though it was uh, Jordan's father. And um, I think that I always remember his face and him being there next to Michael after winning the first championship. And then Jordan winning a championship without his father. And you saw the video coverage, the iconic photo of um, Jordan sprawled out, uh, holding on to the basketball after winning a championship after his father passed away. Remember Jordan played, left the game, played baseball, and then came back and wins wins a championship. And um, just to see him sprawled out like that, just letting all the emotion go, it was all there. Um, It's something that I still think about today because I wonder, like, did the people that killed Jordan's dad know it was James Jordan or was it a random killing or murder? You know, the story goes that James Jordan pulled over. He had his Lexus. You know, so he was driving, pulled over because he got tired driving on those two lane highways, just pulled over to try to get a nap and then to keep driving, I guess afterwards. And then he was, he was killed and his body was found uh, later on. Yeah. That's something that we will never know, I guess, but it just, it's really, um, hit home watching that story again and then watching Michael talk about his father and uh, and how much his father meant to his drive as a basketball player and as a person. So, Eric, let's open the phone lines at 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776. That is our telephone number. If you watch The Last Dance, what stood out to you most about those two episodes last night? I'm uh, going to open the phone lines for you because we got, this is a stacked show. we got a lot to talk about on a very busy sports weekend. Uh, there's only one major sports event that happened over the weekend, but yet there's a lot of stories we got to get to right here under the hood. So I want to get your calls in here, especially if you hear me talking about The Last Dance and you've watched the documentary. What stands out? I'm going to take your phone calls next here. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. We'll take your phone calls, and also we'll talk about the Scotty Pippen problem on this Bulls team. That's next on UTH. This is Under the Hood. Listen to me. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Talking about the Last Dance documentary last night brought to you by Coors Light. If you had a chance to watch the documentary, want to get your thoughts, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our telephone number. Oh, Scotty Pippen. Now, this is the portion of the show we talk about Scotty Pippen. Okay. So, 
I feel like I'm doing my shows all over again, Eric, from 1997 when we talk about Scottie Pippen because <laughs> – so the only difference in 1997 and now is I didn't know how Pippen um, would dominate – on other teams besides his teams with the Bulls. I knew that after his time with the Bulls, he was a top 50 player. He was phenomenal. But I was wondering how he would fare on the other teams. So you think about Scottie Pippen and his career. First of all, the number one thing that stands out is defense because this is all part of the Bulls' culture to be able to not just score and have highlights of championships, but you got to stop somebody. And and Scottie Pippen was a, a big part of that. P- Pippen, to me, was the best defender the Bulls had on the team because of his length, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, uh, the ability to be able to, to shut down small forwards and power forwards if you asked him to. Um, Scottie was just that good in the team defense aspect and one-on-one defense. Looking at what um, he was able to do from a scoring standpoint, he blossomed into a dog. He blossomed into just an, an absolute dog on this team where he could be able to do so many things uh, on this uh, on this basketball team. We take a look at Scottie Pippen and his career um, from a, a number standpoint. It really stands out that, that he is a top 50 player deserving of that honor. Uh, you think about names like Sean Marion, John Havlicek, Dominique Wilkins, Paul Pierce, Elton Brand is on that team as, as well. We're talking about players that had numbers similar to to uh, Pippen uh, when he was a player in the league. Those are really good names in the league. Sean Marion, as I mentioned, is uh, borderline, if not maybe all the very good. John Havlicek, Dominique Wilkins, Paul Pierce, Elton Brand, Adrian Dantley, Detlef Shrimp, Kevin McHale, uh, Paul Casol. When you go to basketballreference.com, you can see how Pippen's numbers equate to those players. And those are really solid players. Uh, watching Pippen's career with Houston after leaving Chicago and the 98-99 season and then Portland to round out his career. It was, it was terrific to watch. But here's the thing in this compliment sandwich I'm going to give to Scottie Pippen. And that is, like, once again having to relive Pippen not wanting to get off the bench when Phil Jackson devised a play for Tony Kukoc. And I remember doing these shows and taking phone calls. And there were some just like, um, you know, of course, going to give it to, to Tony Kukoc. Why give Tony Kukoc that opportunity that Pippen's been on the team longer? Why? And, and my thought was that during that season, and then you only got a glimpse of it in the documentary, but when Jordan wasn't there on that team, that was the best the triangle looked as far as moving the ball around side to side to throw the defense off to get the best available shot. Not that, not just a shot, but the best available. And that's one of the reasons why the, the Bulls stuck together. It was Pippen being on the team as a lead scorer, but that, def- that defense was strong and they moved the ball. Um, Pippen referred to it as like, you know, scoring by committee, but people knew that Pippen was the lead dog, but there was others that could score, including Tony Kukoc. And in that season, as it was documented, Pippen was making, uh, that Kukoc was making some of the shots at the end of games. And for whatever reason, 1.8 on the clock and the play is drawn up and Pippen is not going to get the last shot. He didn't want to get off the bench. And you see Bill Cartwright putting his arm around him like, you know, you're making a mistake. you got to get out there. He never got off the bench. They put, they brought good old number 20 Pete Myers in. Okay, great. So Kukoc ends up hitting the game-winning shot anyway. They go back to the locker room and just like Cartwright in tears 
talking about that whole thing, just like, how could you do this? Um, it, it was just amazing, that particular sequence. But that, along with wanting to be traded in on a championship team, wanting to be traded because of money, even though he gets an initial contract, and Jerry Reinsdorf says, don't sign this contract because it'll be uh, irrelevant maybe in a few months because Reinsdorf could see the forest before the trees. He knew that the big TV money was coming in. Pippen didn't know that. And, of course, Reinsdorf wasn't going to tell him that. But Pippen, I thought, did the right thing by trying to take care of his family and being able to um, to get that initial contract. And, yeah, Pippen came back and said, okay, can you tear up this contract? Can we re renegotiate? And Reinsdorf said no. Now, as I have said many times, a good owner is saying, I understand that you're underpaid. I told you it would be null and void, but we can work something out. Instead of just saying flatly no, there could have been a renegotiation, not for the money that Pippen was looking for, but more. But I'm glad that Pippen initially took care of his family uh, in rural Arkansas uh, that had two handicapped people in, the, in his home. Two people in wheelchairs. So he was able to take care of them financially initially, but then Pippen came back and wanted to have one. So now Pippen wants to be traded. And this is all in the papers. This is all out for everyone to see that Pippen feels like he's been treated unfairly. And Phil has to be able to stem the tide. Jordan has to stem the tide. That's all part of it as well. Did not have the surgery in that last year to line up with his teammates. Now, I'm not going to F up my summer. Didn't want to do that. So he wanted to have surgery when he wanted to. And now that, now that delays the Bulls who eventually win the championship, but the point is that any other teammate that's working hard, and you saw the difference between the Bulls and other teams, where as soon as they lose in a, in a, a playoff situation or as soon as they win a championship, they're right back in the gym together working out to trying to win another one. But Pippen, no, like I'm not going to mess up my surgery. So the season starts for that last championship, and Pippen is not available. He's, you saw him on the sidelines in street clothes because nah, I didn't want, want to F up my summer. It was a lot of stories like that where it doesn't take anything away from Scottie Pippen as a great player. But when I hear about leadership with him, he had a hard time with that. He was a, ter he was a terrific player, top 50 player, great for his time. But when it came to leadership, that, you can see it's not suited for everybody. It just wasn't. I was in the United Center when he threw that chair that they showed in the documentary as well. I, I believe... I have to look it up, but I believe just off the time I had that was against San Antonio. I was there for that. And I was just like, why is that? What's he doing with the chair? And it's just like he throws it across the, because of frustration. Like, that's not anything that Michael would have done or any other Bulls player. But Pippen was like that. And again, as a great player, great. But as far as leadership, he just did not exercise that enough um, to be the complete leader on the team. That was for Phil Jackson. That was for Michael. Uh, it's one thing to lead, by example, on the floor, but when it comes to not wanting to come in games and stuff like that, it was just nonsense. And so that's why his career is checkered and marred. It's always complicated with him. Now, I know that doesn't stand out now because, well, you know, Scotty's on the jump and he's on ESPN as an analyst and all this stuff. But, man, let me tell you, it just seemed like all the time back in the 90s when I'm producing and, and, uh, and hosting shows during that time, Pippen seemed like he was popping up all the time of comments that he would make, issues he had with Krauss and Reinsdorf, which I, I totally understand. But he had no problem just letting people know when he didn't want to do something, he didn't want to do it. So we talk about The Last Dance brought to you by Coors Light on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Let's go now uh, and hear about that 1.8 seconds. I remember like it was yesterday. 
There's Kukoc in that big shot and Scottie Pippen sitting out. Chicago have taken their last time out to set up a shot with 1.8 seconds on the clock. So come to the bench and I have this sequence that Tony has run before and he scored before on it. I know he can do this. I did hit a lot of last second shots during the season. So anyway, I set this up, and then Scotty was angry about it. I felt like it was an insult uh, coming from Phil. I was the most dangerous guy on our team. So why are you asking me to take the ball out? This is a season where he's taken the, the role of Michael. He's had this MVP caliber season. He thought it should be him taking the shot. And so Jim Clemens came over and said, Scotty's not going in. And Phil said, what do you mean he's not going in? And I go down and I said, are you in or out? And he said, I'm out. And I remember Phil just, Phil said, Pete Myers, come on in. And when Pip refused to go in that game, it was like a Twilight Zone moment. Like, what the hell is going on? Scotty's going to sit here. That's strange, isn't it? Scotty would sit on this. 1.8 left. No timeouts left for the Bulls. Well, I would say obviously happy for making a shot, but the whole situation, even going towards the locker, you you, you see everybody is like fist that 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 things are not right we don't know how to act because scotty's one of our favorite teammates one of our favorite people in the world you know he quit on us and that we couldn't believe that happened it was uh, it, it was devastating what he did you know you just you, know, you don't expect a, a teammate to do so i go out and just dress it to the team this is something that we never thought would ever happen that we'd stop playing you know, it's affected us as a whole team, Scotty, that you did this. What I remember most, though, is Bill Cartwright after the game. Bill Cartwright gets up and makes this speech saying, Pip, you let us down. I cannot believe. And he started crying. Tears coming down his face. And he said, Scotty, I cannot believe that you quit on us like that. We had come too far with that team to, to go out like that. Scotty was in tears and upset, and he realized, you know, I made a mistake. I thought it was bigger than the game. I'm not. And he apologized to us. I think the worst part was, was that we knew it was not Scotty's character. We knew that wasn't him. Um, and we knew it was going to be a stain on his reputation. The next day, I get a call from Michael. He said, I don't know if Scotty's ever going to live this town. It's always going to come back to haunt him at some point in some conversation. Pip knows better than that. It's one of those incidents where, uh, you know, I wish it never happened. But if I had a chance to do it over again, I probably wouldn't change it. 
right there for the last dance. How about that, Eric? That's the that's the cherry on the top. If he had to do it all over again, once again, he'd sit out the one point eight. When I was watching that, that whole sentence as he's saying it, it sounds like and it feels like he's going to say like I regretted that and I would never have done that. But then he just completely flips at the end. He goes, I'd probably do it again. Boy. Well, welcome to my nightmare in the 90s, talking about this on a nightly basis, right? That, this is it. Something about like athletes and celebrities never wanting to go back on something. Just I mean, It was clear he, he felt bad about it, but he couldn't just say it out loud. It, it's it's such a conundrum. Because, it is right because I just get I just laid out before we played the cut the the, the compliment sandwich right. I mean, there's no question he's a top fifty player, and and there's no question he's great. But there's these little things. They're not small. They are are things on his resume that makes you wonder like was he even happy to the point, sir? And we'll talk about this later. There is a correlation with Scottie Pippen now and then. And what you see with the modern athlete in 2020. We'll talk about it a little bit later on in our show. Uh, still to come in our next uh, half hour, we will hear from Ray Flores, his thoughts on UFC 249. Did you watch that or hear about that? That was the only live sporting event of note, um, and Ray was able to cover that. So we'll talk to Ray coming up. Uh, also, uh, how are the Cubs doing financially during this COVID-19? We'll answer that question coming up next. Go. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJ Hood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. So baseball right around the corner, maybe. Now listen, we just saw the UFC 249 from Jacksonville with no fans. Um... You know, on, for that sport, is a little strange, and we'll get into that with Ray Flores coming up. He'll break it down, UFC 249. But um, So even though UFC had three people that had COVID-19, two cameramen, and one fighter, uh, they just said, move the drill, and we'll just keep on, keep on fighting. And it just went through, and uh, many that were interested in live sports were happy to see it on pay-per-view, on ESPN+, Plus, actually. So Jeff Passan writes this from ESPN.com. Owners approve Major League Baseball season proposal plan for July. Uh, start as players' union preps to weigh in. So Major League Baseball owners approved a proposal that Commissioner Rob Manford plans to present to players Tuesday on a return-to-play scenario that aims to have baseball back in home stadiums by early July. Uh, the meeting between Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Player Association on Tuesday will set the stage on for what parties expect to be a contentious negotiation. Of course it will. Um, when I, I'm going through this, in reading the pass in peace, um, money is at the heart of the return. Um, and so let's hear from Jeff Passan. Um, players' reaction to a 50-50 revenue split for 2020. Players aren't exactly happy with this right now because if you look at the NFL, if you look at the NBA, if you look at the NHL, they all have revenue splits. The difference between those three in Major League Baseball is that MLB does not have a salary cap. And typically you see a revenue split in leagues that have salary caps. Now, we are in very different times than normal. And so MLB here is trying to get creative to figure out how to make up for the losses 
that they're going to have in revenue by not having fans in stadiums. But ultimately, the MLB Players Association is looking at a March agreement that was made with the league that said they're going to be paid a prorated share of their salary, depending on the number of games played. Now, the league doesn't exactly see it that way. They think that the agreement says if there are no fans in the stands, it's different. That's going to be hashed out over the coming days and weeks. Okay. All right. So some thoughts there from from Jeff Passan. You know, it always comes always comes down to money, right? If there's any questions about how uh, the sport will return, it's always about money. Among the vital points included in the proposal, an expansion of playoff teams from 10 to 14, an 82-game season, the use of home stadiums in arenas that have local and state government approval, a so-called spring training 2.0 that would begin in June with a season set, uh, or the season set uh, for early July, a universal designated hitter, geographical uh, schedules in which teams play only in division opponents and interleague opponents in a similar area, like American League Central teams play in American League Central and the National League Central teams. So, so the geographical schedules, meaning that. I guess the Cubs and Sox and the Brewers and the Tigers, because that's geographical. I guess that's works in the Midwest. It also says a 30 man roster with a taxi squad that would uh, have upward of 50 players available. Oh, that's a lot. So the playoff extension, or I'm sorry, the playoff expansion, which had been floated before the coronavirus pandemic hit, would increase revenue as it shrivels in other areas. Teams estimate that upward of 40% of revenue comes from ticket sales and other gate-related income. So it all comes down to money. That's one thing. But then trying to figure out how the schedule would go. I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago that I could see Major League Baseball trying to uh, start the season on the 4th of July weekend. Like maybe that fr- that Thursday, the 4th of July falls on a Saturday. So it wouldn't surprise me if, they, if it would be that weekend. That wouldn't surprise me. An 82-game season, that would be a sprint. And so that would be something different for baseball. Usually this happens when there's a work stoppage or a strike where there's a sprint to the finish. But adding additional playoff teams. But again, the also the key to this, the use of home stadiums in areas that have local and state government approval, that's not everybody. Uh, Toronto was shut down for the year. We discussed this about a month ago where I don't think the Blue Jays are going to be able to play uh, in Toronto. They had to play in Dunedin, Florida, where their spring training uh, facility is. So they wouldn't have any home games. And again, owners will be looking for their revenue there, even though it's their, it's their spring training facility, if they do play in Dunedin. Um, interesting times here because not every state is open as we well know uh, around the country. As you're listening to ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app, uh, Jonathan Hood with you. Let's go now to Buster Olney. So Buster Olney is on SportsCenter. Listen very closely. Uh, He talks about the first step in Major League Baseball returning. If baseball comes back, this is the beginning of that process, but I do think we have to think of it like it's the top of the first inning with a long way to go because they have so many things to work through. First, the questions about player safety, the questions about testing, the questions about if players, some players don't want to participate, what do they do with those players? And then, of course, they have the financial issues. The owners have indicated they want financial rollbacks, salary rollbacks, and the players are saying no. Uh, Union Chief uh, Tony Clark has said the negotiations on that are over. There's so much to go through, and, of course, they're completely at the mercy of whether or not potentially there could be some hot spots 
as we saw with the White House in recent days. Buster only talks about this. Now, how about this piece on the Chicago Cubs? Watch the Chicago Cubs. What you're hearing is they are having a financial crunch because ownership bought a lot of the land around Wrigley Field. Uh, they were hoping, of course, that people would go and use uh, some of the facilities they have there. They haven't been having income, uh, it, of course, in recent weeks like other teams, but they have a number of veterans on that team nearing uh, contract crossroads. For example, Chris Bryant, the third baseman. Other teams heard he was available during the course of the winter. If, in fact, the Cubs wind up having to move some money, then Chris Bryant would be one candidate. And I do think whenever the rosters are unfrozen, it could be like 9.30 on the stock market where suddenly you see teams looking to dump debt as soon as they possibly can in light of the financial losses. Hear that, Cubs fans? Didn't mean to bury the lead there because we didn't need to get the story about when baseball will return, but how about the Cubs? All of the uh, all of the assets that the Ricketts family owns, the uh, garden and the, the farmer's market and everything else that's around Wrigley Field, um, because they got to pay for that and there hasn't been any revenue coming in there because of COVID-19, they could be able to be a seller immediately versus a buyer. The question we always asked was, what is the David Ross regime really all about? Well, now with COVID-19, it's interesting that Buster only, without being asked, by the way, just brings about a nowhere that the Cubs are going are kind of cash-strung because of everything they own around the ballpark and the lack of revenue stream that's coming in there to pay for it. The Cubs going backwards as a franchise because of COVID-19, that's not what you paid for if you are a season ticket holder. You're hoping to be able to get a, a bump up after the Madden era. And that may not happen now because of what's going on. Interesting story there. I know Jesse's on that as well for uh, ESPN.com. One major live event took place on Saturday, UFC 249. How did it go? We talked to Ray Flores about it. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. We'll try to put some money in your pockets coming up at 8 o'clock with our segment Value Bet. We'll make sure that you put some money in your pocket because... You take a look at the NFL futures. You know, they say that the Bears could be able to be winning about seven or eight games this year. Also, to keep our eyes on the NFC North, are the Bears favorite? I know that the Vikings and the Packers are supposed to be the uh, favorites in the NFC North, so we'll do value bet coming up at 8 o'clock. Also, we'll give you tales from the hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between coming up at 8.30. Um, and, and this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, at 9 o'clock, we are going to give you a look at the NFC North, more so than the Bears. Then we'll take a look at the Packers. We'll have Rob Domofsky on tonight. Then we'll have a Vikings and Lions preview. So we'll do that all this week. Kind of look in the schedules, kind of look at what those teams have done. How close are the Bears to the Packers and the Vikings and the Lions? We'll review that all tonight. Um, this week, starting tonight with Rob Domofsky right here on ESPN 1000. We turn to Ray Flores, our combat sports expert. 
Uh, he was able to watch UFC 249. You can actually catch Ray on Premier Boxing as well. Go to his Instagram and, and go to his Facebook to be able to see great interviews that Ray does for Premier Boxing. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, here on ESPN 1000. Ray, thanks for your time. Jonathan, good evening to you, my friend. Man, was it great to have fighting back on television. Yes, that's true, but I do have to ask you, sir. <laughs> you yes. weren't so sure how that was going to go off because two cameramen and then uh, you had uh, Ronaldo uh, Souza out yes. with COVID-19. What was your initial reaction to those three stories? Well, when when that came down, I was thinking, oh, boy, uh, is this going to get postponed? I'm glad I wait until the day of the fight to purchase it. So with that said... It was up in the air, but everyone seemed to take the necessary precautions. The UFC went without a hitch, with the exception of those three that you mentioned, and everyone seemed to you know, perform at a very high level. But yes, I was a little concerned after uh, Sousa you know, tested positive for the coronavirus the day before the fight. So the, let's go to the main event first, Ray, because Gaethje against Ferguson. Boy, you know, when you put a fight together, if you're Dana White or just any promoter when it comes to MMA, you want it to deliver, right? I mean, it's the main event. Yes. You want it to deliver, whether it's a first-round knockout or going to the distance. This thing almost went to the, the distance here. For, you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on the fight, but I, I just want to point out, you know, Ferguson – his face was just a crimson mask. The the -hmm. amount of punishment that he took, Ray. But you know what? Ferguson never tried to slow the the bout down. Never tried to get a takedown. Never tried to maybe alter his strategy a little bit to try to slow down Gaethje because Gaethje, he really worked hard. Almost a flawless match for him against Ferguson. Jonathan, you bring up a great point. I was texting with my brother, and I was, you know, saying, I'm like, Ferguson's fighting the wrong fight. You know, after the first round, and it was evident that Gaethje was, had the, you know, the more, the heavier punches, was getting the better of the stand-up exchanges. I can't believe Ferguson didn't shoot to try to get Gaethje down on the ground or even try to impede the, the timing of what Gaethje was doing to him. I was blown away that Ferguson was willing to stand and trade with Gaethje throughout the entire fight. After the first round, maybe I'd give you two rounds to do that, but then you got to change up your game plan. It seemed like Ferguson had no other plan B or plan C, and he got lit up during the course of that fight because of that. So Ferguson ends up having a facial fracture, and I just... You know, after a while, Ray, you just get tired of get hitting in the face. For God's sakes, I mean, you, I mean, listen, you got to be able to mix it up there with Gaethje. But Gaethje was in there, and it was about as good a fight as you'll find. As someone that just stayed in there with his technique, his trainers were telling him, "Hey, Gaethje, you know, make sure that you stay the course here. You know, don't let up because you've lost fights in the past by you know not hitting the gas all throughout the the, the fights that you've had." And that, and he really was in control. So you know, shouts out to him. He was uh, he was terrific in this fight. Justin Gaethje fought the fight of his life, Jonathan. I haven't seen him look that good ever in the octagon. He was patient. He brought the fight to Ferguson. He never overextended himself. He threw punches in bunches. He remained, you know, he had better defense than what we've seen him use. And he just, it was a clinical dissection, but in brutal fashion, by Justin Gaethje. I mean, this guy 
has been in his fair share of wars. And I thought he was a little shopworn heading into that fight, Jonathan. I joined you last week to discuss that. But, man, did Gaethje impress the heck out of me. And he's hitting this stride. And how do you not like a guy that just comes forward? And then when he won the interim title, instead of putting it around his waist, he kind of tossed and said, look, that's essentially that's a participation trophy. I want the real belt and that being held by Khabib Nurmagomedov. That's amazing. Uh, Ray Flores, combat sports expert, watch UFC 249. We meet Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So, Hudo, uh, in this matchup against Cruz, first I want to ask you about the, the, the matchup. Did you believe it was an early stoppage and that Cruz got screwed? After watching it again, 11 unanswered strikes, I don't believe that is the case, Jonathan. They tell the referee tells the fighters, he meets with the fighters before, and he says, defend yourself intelligently at all times. The referee gave Cruz 11 punches to be able to show him something and cover up. He did not do that. Cejudo went out and did what he did, but I thought it was a fair stoppage by the referee. Well, I guess I saw Cruz trying to get up after, you know, got up to a knee. And so I'm, I know Cruz is not happy about the about the, the finish of that, but I, I get it. I just thought that Cruz is on his way up. But I guess if you're an official in that spot, you don't have time to wait. It's just because when you're throwing so many blows, I thought of, I thought it was early initially, Jonathan, then I watched it back, and, and I've talked to so many referees, and after five or six punches, they start to get worried. When you start to get to double digits, that becomes a problem. And that's why I didn't have an issue with the referee stepping in and waving it off. That's yeah, tough. So, so what do you think of uh, Cejudo uh, saying that he's going to call quits, he's going to retire at age 33, and Dana White saying that he's been told that in the past? Jonathan, if Henry Cejudo is going to hang it up, I'm not going to drink Diet Coke anymore. And I love <laughs> Diet Coke. That's how I survive when it comes to my life, my friend. So he's not going nowhere. He's just trying to get more money out of the UFC. It is a, a tactic. It's a ploy. What's he going to go do? Go and become an accountant? No disrespect to accountants all over the world. But yes. come on, Henry. Like, oh, I might want to do real estate. Bro, you are a fighter. You're an Olympic gold medalist. There's only, you know, you don't know how to do that much. And that's me kind of being mean to Cejudo. But fighters are fighters. There's a reason why Muhammad Ali came back I don't know how many times. Cejudo is still 33 years of age in the prime. He's dominating everybody. Uncle Dana needs to write him a check, throw a couple more zeros behind it, and then Cejudo will be back probably by the end of the year. So what does this do for Khabib, all of this that ha- that uh, happened? Because he was tweeted, he said, I have no comment on any of this because I think he saw dollar signs just float past his eyes uh, that's not there now. Well, it does two things. One, him and Ferguson is cursed forever. I mean, there's certain fights that are cursed. You know, there was one, the, the, the third fight with Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castillo didn't happen. That fight was cursed. Ferguson and Khabib, that fight is, I mean, there was five times this should happen. It didn't transpire. So that one is cursed. But I do believe that with Gaethje and Khabib being managed by the same person, 
that that fight happens sooner than later, and I think it is an excellent, excellent fight. Justin Gaethje's stock just rose considerably. The fact that he, his people, his management saying, you know what, we don't want to fight Conor McGregor. We want to fight Khabib. We want to fight for the world championship. When you're denying and saying, I don't want to fight Conor McGregor, that financially is the biggest opponent for you. That's, you can make the most money with Conor McGregor, but you want to fight for the world title? That is gangster status to me if you're Dustin Gaethje saying, look, I want to fight for the world title. That's what I'm destined to do. And that's what's probably going to happen is him and Khabib, once all this settles down, they're going to get it on. Lastly, Ray, you've been around uh, cages for a long time covering UFC fights, but this was different for me. Empty Arena in Jacksonville, Florida, you could hear audibly the, the fist on flesh um, to the point where you could hear the announcers recoil. Like, like John Anik, like, they, they just couldn't. I mean, because you've been, in, <laughs> you've been at ringside or cage side mm-hmm. for when the, when the doors open and it's just mm-hmm. maybe just family and friends, and you can actually audibly <laughs> hear the, the, the bones break in the flesh. But when there's nobody in the place for the entire fight and you can hear the fist on flesh, it was um, a different level of broadcast there. It was. And you know what? Daniel Cormier actually went when Hardy was fighting and Cormier said about Greg Hardy, hey, he needs to check those kicks. And then Hardy admitted, he goes, hey, he goes, I kind of heard D.C., you know, the form, the champion, go ahead and say I need to check some kicks. So I did that and that helped me out. That's where I'm a little torn, Jonathan, because I've been told on my end, boxing is going to come back behind closed doors. So do we have to push back the broadcast position where we're not up against the ring or up against the cage? Because... I don't want to give away information that I'm seeing and then have a fighter use it for better or for worse. That's not fair, but (laughs) it was very, very different. I thought it was wickedly entertaining, but I do believe that us broadcasters need to be moved back to where the fighters cannot hear us audibly. It may be hard at times, but they got to put it somewhere else where it's not that easy for them to hear within an earshot of what we are discussing. Ray, as always, I appreciate your perspective. Just wanted to grab you to talk about UFC 249. Very interesting. Looking forward to the uh, the next card for UFC. Jonathan, anytime you need me on, my friend, I am always here for you. And cheers from Southern California, my friend. No, 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 no. Your time. Jonathan Hood time on ESPN 1000.